Hey everyone, I'm Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. My mind is a barrel. If you want, go ahead and hit subscribe. So today we are going to be talking about speculation and short-termism. This past week I did a bunch of different primers on different topics in the stock market and the economy and in crypto. If you want to go check those out, I talked about the Federal Reserve, stablecoins, the metaverse, and supply chains, and I'm going to continue that next week providing a repository for a little bit more evergreen information. For this piece today, I want to talk about speculation and I want to talk about short-termism and all the different things that are going on in the market right now. So there is something called the modern dilemma. <laughs> the 2021 US General Social Survey data came out recently and it was talking about happiness and all the happiness levels that have happened over the past several years. So in 1974, 37.9% of people said that they were very happy, which is quite high. In 2021, it was 19.5% of people saying that they were very, very happy. Big collapse in people that were saying that they were happy or not. In 2018, it was 29.9%. We can imagine, obviously, that a global pandemic probably had something to do with it, but I think it's just interesting to think about how this happiness is reflected in our day-to-day -day lives. Statistics are skewed, and of course, this probably isn't fully representative of everybody out there. I know that some people out there are very happy, good for them, but we've never been more unhappy on aggregate. And I recognize that this is not evenly spread, like I said, but most people have more things than they ever have had. Income, opportunity, all of those things, they're here in abundance for a lot of different people. Like I said, this is on aggregate. I know that there's a huge wealth gap and huge amounts of wealth disparity, but on aggregate compared to 100 years ago, more people are better off than they've ever been. So you would think that with that happening, we'd be incrementally happier, right? But happiness is of course very subjective. It's very, very hard to measure. But I think a few of the reasons that we're so unhappy is because of social media. I think that really does play a very big role into how we see ourselves and how we see the world. So we are constantly comparing ourselves to others, measuring our self-worth by this digital appearance and our barometers are constantly having to adjust to unattainable social standards. Social media creates truly this unattainable standard that we can never meet because nobody actually looks like that but we think that people do there's also this increasing wealth flexing on social media a lot of people got very very rich during the pandemic whether that be from the stock market or from crypto there's increasing disparity in wealth it feels like everyone is getting rich but me that sort of societal pressure can be really tough and that's exacerbated by social media and how we interact with the online there's also frustration because of social media we're able to see politicians a little bit more closely we're able to see their failures we're able to see our leaders up close and personal that compounds into a certain friction for feelings of optimism right like if you're constantly seeing policymakers make mistakes you're like okay <laughs> what's going on here and then consumerism can often act as a band-aid we oftentimes buy things in order to fill the gaps that we think that we might have and that's a really vicious feedback loop is this element of consumerism so go and buy something to make yourself feel better because short-term purchases don't equate to long-term happiness. Stan Drunkenmiller did a really good interview with Seth Klarman around this idea of bubbles, where the stock market is really, really euphoric. And one of the best takeaways for me was this idea of short-termism. A lot of investors live in the present, which is a disaster long-term, 
it might work short term. They talked about the everything bubble too during this discussion. I think the most important thing is not the everything bubble. It's this idea of short termism, which feeds into the everything bubble. They go hand in hand, right? We as humans have to operate with a short term mindset at all times. We scurry from one meeting to another. We scurry from one activity to another. We scurry along in life with this evolutionary mindset of scarcity. And nothing is wrong with that. It's just how we are as humans, but it really shapes how we interact with the world because our sole goal is like, go, 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 go execute, go do this, go do that. We're constantly told that we have to go achieve something new, something different, and, and that's you know, fine, but we see this short-termism in supply chains with the bullwhip effect, right? Like this is amplified example is this idea of short-termism. Oh, a shortage might happen. Better go get a lot more than I need because there could be even more shortages down the road. We're thinking very much in the short term. This results in the supply chains being squeezed and everything kind of compounding downwards and making this whole situation a lot worse. We get spooked by this idea of scarcity and we demand more because of that. Then we scurry along to the next activity. We're predisposed to an element of fear and we operate in the short term because that's what we're biologically designed to do. We're biologically designed to operate with a short term mindset, which is why this isn't quote unquote bad. But our human brains have been really stretched recently because there's a sense of chicken little running around. The sky is falling. It feels like the sky is going to fall at any moment. Global pandemic. We have supply chain issues. We have labor shortages. We have inflation fears. The climate, who knows what's going on with that? The big climate summit was an absolute failure in terms of getting things done. And then you have Larry Fink telling us that ESG is greenwashing. Of course it's greenwashing. We just don't have any solutions for all these different problems that are popping up. And so it does feel like, you know, the sky is falling. This is really compounded by a very hot and honestly like a spooky market. Seeing stocks like Avis go up 200%, seeing GameStop at the beginning of this year, seeing AMC happen, it's like, oh, maybe, like what? <laughs> that doesn't feel natural. The market is, is really focused on the short term, most notably recently with Tesla. Tesla maybe had a deal with Hertz. They don't, but still it, that they, the mere concept of a deal somehow manifested billions of dollars in market cap. How does that actually happen? How does that actually translate to the real world? And then you have to back out and be like, why wouldn't Tesla, the meme stonk of them all, command billions of dollars in pure meme value? Aren't the fundamentals of Tesla just pure memes? Maybe fundamentals have shifted. So the way that we normally think about valuing stocks is not profitability and cash flow, but rather it's FOMO and pure speculation. The market itself has changed. Maybe the short term is just a quick cash grab for potentially long-term happiness. People are like, okay, I'm going to optimize for the short term and then ride out the wave in the long term. But it does feel like markets have become speculative tools rather than like, oh yeah, you know, I'll put my money in this and retire in 60 years. The concept of retirement feels so foreign <laughs> to so many people because it's the market has become a speculative tool, which is fine in practice. Like memes are funny. It's 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 fine, but it does require us to rethink how market systems work because with this idea of speculation, Raul Paul had a really interesting thread on it and Alex Good followed up with almost a perfect foil to the thread. So I'm going to link to both of those in the newsletter if you want to go read them. But the main thing was that this generation is completely all in on the gamble. Like Gen Z, millennials, society was not built for them. It has made it increasingly clear that, you know, you can have your foot in the door, but that doesn't mean you're getting through the doorframe. Society is not meeting people right now where, where it needs to. Speculation oftentimes feels like it's the only solution to meeting 
your needs as a human being because the game has changed. Markets have changed. The way that money flows is changing. And the way that we live life has changed. The reason that we're unhappy is because the way that we live our lives has ultimately changed. Some of this feels really, really bad. Ben Collins had a really good tweet about the Zillow situation, which I'll talk about a little bit more. But he said, I want to know what it does to young people's brains growing up in a world where basic human needs like housing is just another object in a wildly fluctuating speculation market. And they're always slightly out of reach because a VC backed bot was programmed to make it that way. Oof, everything has become speculative, everything. And then speculation, you know, it's playing with emotions. So with Zillow, that's sort of that speculative market. People of all ages get priced out of the housing market. And we know that one way to make wealth in the U.S. society is to have a home. Real estate is a core driver of wealth in the United States. And to see it just leveraged by a misaligned algorithm feels kind of bad, right? Like it's like, okay, um, go and play a game with something that a lot of people don't have access to. Like, oh, all right, housing feels like it's something that we shouldn't really play around with, especially considering the massive wealth gap. Once again, there's a need to take matters into your own hands, to run against the system, to build something that risk is celebrated because of that. Speculation is celebrated because of that. But on the flip side of that debate, can the market even handle this element of risk, this element of speculation? And Alex Good's thread really gets into that idea of like, no, it can't. And I, I think that I'm not going to touch on all of that stuff, like can the market handle, because that's a little bit outside of the scope. But I do want to touch on like this weird concept of wealth. The reason that people are speculating, mostly I think, is, is to become wealthy. Maybe it's because the risk is fun. We do have a gambling problem in our society. In context of speculative markets and market endurance, it's like, what does it actually mean to be rich? All our lives, we're taught to get a good job, settle down with our 30-year mortgage. And there's clearly a growing dissent against that movement. That comes in a few layers. This return to analog, so the return to wired headphones, the return to simplicity. If you go on TikTok, there's like a whole cottage core section. There is a desire for things to be less complex, right? To go back to a world where you aren't online all the time, where you aren't seeing all this madness bubble up around you. And with the metaverse, and I'm really excited for the applications to education within the metaverse, but I do worry that there is an increasing disconnect between the physical and the digital. So we know that the world is burning and going into a computer with VR goggles isn't going to save that. There's broadly dissatisfaction with corporatism. So I think that there's an increasing desire to live life outside of a traditional corporate structure, not because the traditional corporate structure is quote unquote bad, more so it just doesn't work the same way that it used to. You can't just go have a nine to five and, and expect things to work. It's not that easy anymore. There's still like this underlying paradox to the system of everything that I just talked about. Charlie Munger is designing dorms. And, and I think this is a really great example of corporatism leaking its way into everything. He paid... $200 million. He was like, yep, I'll, I'll slide you a quick 200 mil. Don't worry. The place costs $1.5 billion. So incrementally, that's not a lot. But he demands to design it or else, you know, $200 million, forget about it. The way that he's designing these dorms, <laughs> no windows, two exits. It's for a lot of people. It's a huge tower. And he's like, yep, you know, you don't need windows. You'll have virtual windows. <laughs> you can imagine that in a dorm where you do not have a window, you're probably going to get sad. When interviewed about the pushback, he said, I'd rather be a billionaire and not be loved by everybody than not have any money. 
Munger is Buffett's right-hand man. He made his money in markets, and now he is designing, without a formal architectural background, dorms for the next generation of leaders. And he's like, you don't need windows. You don't need happiness. Forget about that. This is another point of friction because it feels like policymakers and leaders do not care about their constituents, and maybe they don't, and maybe they don't have to. Like, I don't know. The traditional structure to achieve wealth is no longer the best way to achieve wealth. Charlie Munger made his game in markets. Wealth has become broadly a function of making big bets in speculative markets versus investing 40 years in a corporate company. Like, you're nine to five, you're probably not going to become a millionaire off the back of that. That is why we see some cracks beginning to show in the labor force. Productivity numbers came out yesterday and they were low and they were bad. They fell for the first time since 1981. Contrasting all of this against the strain in the supply chain with productivity going down, it increasingly feels like we're just forgetting that there's a physical world. It increasingly feels like we're forgetting that there's an earth beneath our feet and that we can't exist without our physical being yet. And I'm all for the creator economy, obviously. I'm all for crypto. I'm all for growth and innovation across all types of businesses. But we have to remember that the world is still here. And that's really tough to grapple with, especially in increasingly online reality where we haven't figured out our physical reality. I'm trying to stuff people into windowless rooms. <laughs> so as we run full speed into the metaverse, I think that you know the system itself is showing clear signs of being stretched. I think this is broadly because there is a gamification of the system. If markets don't work the way that you want, make them work the way that you want. There are winners and losers in sort of manipulating our physical reality. Zillow, that whole situation, absolute mess. They were playing a losing game from the beginning. They were trying to outsmart local markets with an algorithm, which is very hard to do. You have to know a local market in order to price real estate in that market. As Ben wrote, local market specialists are always better informed than you and will systematically sell to you when your value estimate is very high. Zillow was always going to get burned here. They had to fire 25% of their workforce because of this algorithmic way of buying up homes and then trying to sell them back out. It's a mispricing of risk, a fundamental misunderstanding that in order to make markets, you have to take on market risk. And Zillow was like, no, we don't have to take on market risk. We can buy these homes and then sell them. You have to be able to price in that risk in your structure in order for that structure to work. Still a human behind all this in those local markets. And they're obviously going to decide who wins versus who doesn't. Then a winner of designing the system in his favor is obviously Bill Ackman. So Bill gets to lobby the Fed to lower interest rates when he has on a position in place that would allow him to benefit from lowering interest rates. And he did this during the pandemic, too. There's a premium to having this sort of seat, and he can design the game in his favor, mostly. That's like a systematic problem. OPEC, they can design the system in their favor, and they're doing that right now with energy prices. Biden is like, please, more oil. And OPEC's like, absolutely not. Your energy crisis is not our problem. But it is, right? Because we have to have oil. So the system can get designed by the people who are playing the players who play it. So Bill Ackman can go lobby policymakers. But then the question becomes, like, how do you win a game that nobody knows the answer to? This gets into the uncertainty of modern policymakers. There was an FOMC meeting this week. A big summary would just be like, the Fed doesn't know what to do which is kind of scary. You know, I think one of the reasons that we're broadly unhappy because we know that nobody knows, we know that we've made a mess of things, and that kind of sucks. There's short-termism in our political system where politicians literally design policy in order to get them reelected in two or four years. There's massive wealth effects as politicians don't get the broad experience for the people that they're serving, don't quite understand what it's like to be a real person. Jerome Powell, he did a really good job. He said that this was a new world, and it's very tough to implement policy 
f designed for an old framework into a brand new world. Like it's just really hard to do that. All of our monetary policy is built around a big nudge nudge. The Fed nudges the bond market that nudges banks, then the banks nudge us as people, consumers, producers. It's indirect. The impact is a little fuzzy at times, especially because rates have been so low for so long. But the Fed is trying to do what they can do. And so they're, you know, tapering now. They're pulling back $15 billion of the bond purchases they do to start putting contractionary pressure on things to be like, hey, market, chill out. And they're pivoting from backstopping the market a little bit. They've also commented that this pace could change. They're just giving themselves a little bit of leeway, which you have to do in designing policy, I guess. It's not a bad thing. It's just the thing supply chain woes. So Jerome Powell came out and said that they would not be able to fix inflationary pressures because he cannot fix the supply chain. He can make it harder for you to go get a loan to go get a truck, but he can't go make you get a truck and start delivering boxes. That's not something that's in their policy toolkit. And also this idea of maximum employment, they said that they're far from their goal here. They think they'll achieve it by 2022, but they don't really know what maximum employment looks like. They used to have this goal of full employment, but now maximum employment is full employment plus inclusivity plus wage growth. And they can't make people get hired. They can just nudge, nudge. But nudge, nudge probably isn't going to work anymore, right? Um, the system is just a little bit too convoluted. What does all of it mean, right? Final thoughts. The end state is a subscription model. <laughs> the Fed needs to have a subscription model to monetary policy. <laughs> There's a really interesting move by Coinbase. Rather than relying on trading fees, they're actually trying to switch to a subscription model. They're seeking stability of income through the time-tested model of subscription. And that's a sign that speculative markets will one day die down. We all know this. It is not enough to rely on trading fees within the crypto market. Coinbase is like, okay, it's time to go get a subscription model. This is a huge signal that speculative markets will die down. Short-termism makes these boom-bust cycles have to bust at some point. It's just inevitable. We are cyclical as humans. We get collectively distracted by something else. But the beautiful thing about short-termism and speculation is that it allows more capital to enter the system. There's the potential for that capital to be directed to something more productive and to change the lives of people, right? Because we are humans, we are stories storytellers. We know how to create fiction. We know how to live lives driven by collective belief of assets. The systems work because we believe in them. Speculation is probably not net bad. It does allow more money to flow into the system. It allows collective belief to happen. I think it allows for more exposure for all types of people to see kind of what's behind the screen. But we do have to think about the second order effects of that. As Emile Saran said, my favorite philosopher, <laughs> man starts over again every day in spite of all he knows against all he knows. I think that the market is cyclical, right? Humans are cyclical, so the systems that we build are cyclical. I don't know if it'll be a spectacular boom bust, but I do think that there's a huge opportunity to rethink market systems and capital allocation and design them in a way that optimizes for the very, very tough goal of happiness. I don't know exactly what that looks like, and maybe speculation is the future. Maybe everything just becomes a big bet. I don't know. But I do think as things crumble and current systems get stretched, we have a very, very big chance to rebuild them. That was speculation and short-termism. A little bit a little bit floofy, I would say, but hopefully you enjoyed it. I'll be back on Monday with the energy crisis. If you want to read this instead of listening to me talk, you can go to my newsletter, kyla.substack.com and go read it there. This is also a clipped podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on all your different podcast listening platforms. If you want, go ahead and hit subscribe. Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for hanging out and I will see you all soon.